Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher. Still. I don't know how I keep doing it, and I really don't know how well it's all working right now, but I am a high school English teacher. And a writer. And for at least four more episodes, a podcaster. Those four episodes, which will all be pieces by female authors and will thus finish off the Feminist Justice series, giving this podcast at least gender equity in the list of authors examined, 16 men and 16 women, though it's still not completely balanced as there are three male authors who have multiple episodes, two by Saki, two by Frank Stockton, and four by Poe. Our four, actually five as the next episode is two poems, of my all-time favorite pieces by four of my all-time favorite authors, including this one. Today, we will be reading and analyzing Why Leaves Turn Color in the Fall by the amazing Diane Ackerman. Diane Ackerman, along with James Baldwin, Edward Abbey, and Virginia Woolf, and it saddens me that I don't have an essay by Virginia Woolf in here, so I may need to do some rearranging with these last episodes or something. Huh. Maybe I can do a multi-episode encore series on A Room of One's Own. Uh, She was one of the authors I studied in the best writing class I ever had, the first class that really taught me to examine writing carefully and precisely, particularly my own. I think that Baldwin and Wolfe were the two strongest influences on my writing, as I prefer long and complex ideas. But Ackerman is maybe the most poetic of the four, and that inspired me then, more than 20 years ago, and it still does. I came across this particular essay in one of my textbooks, read it with my AP language class on a whim, and then quickly realized that there is something special about this one. I have since put it to use for a particular lesson, which I am going to try to recreate here. This one is going to be about figurative language. All those little poetic devices authors use to add layers of meaning and create special effects, and with which Ackerman is an absolute maestra. But of course, we're also just going to read this and try to make sense of it, since that is the first task of any reader, let alone any analysis. I recommend getting a copy of the text, which can be found through a link I've put in the episode notes, and reading it along with me. That will be even more helpful when we go back through and look at the language. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an editable copy of this piece, but I recommend printing and then writing on the document, or at least getting yourself a program that will let you add annotations to a PDF, which I did find, and I will link in the episode notes. But first, let's just read and enjoy. Ready? Here we go. Why Leaves Turn Color in the Fall by Diane Ackerman The stealth of autumn catches one unaware. Was that a goldfinch perching in the early September woods, or just the first turning leaf? A red-winged blackbird, or a sugar maple closing up shop for the winter? Keen-eyed as leopards, we stand still and squint hard, looking for signs of movement. Early morning frost sits heavily on the grass and turns barbed wire into a string of stars. On a distant hill, a small square of yellow appears to be a lighted stage. At last the truth dawns on us. Fall is staggering in, right on schedule, with its baggage of chilly nights, macabre holidays, and spectacular 
heart-stoppingly beautiful leaves. Soon, the leaves will start cringing on the trees and roll up in clenched fists before they actually fall off. Dry seed pods will rattle like tiny gourds. But first, there will be weeks of gushing color, so bright, so pastel, so confetti-like, that people will travel up and down the East Coast just to stare at it. A whole season of leaves. Where do the colors come from? Sunlight rules most living things with its golden edicts. When the days begin to shorten, soon after the summer solstice on June 21st, a tree reconsiders its leaves. All summer it feeds them so they can process sunlight. But in the dog days of summer, the tree begins pulling nutrients back into its trunk and roots, pears down, and gradually chokes off its leaves. A corky layer of cells forms at the leaves' slender petioles, then scars over. Undernourished, the leaves stop producing the pigment chlorophyll, and photosynthesis ceases. Animals can migrate, hibernate, or store food to prepare for winter. But where can a tree go? It survives by dropping its leaves, and by the end of autumn, only a few fragile threads of fluid-carrying xylem hold leaves to their stems. A turning leaf stays partly green at first, then reveals splotches of yellow and red as the chlorophyll gradually breaks down. Dark green seems to stay longest in the veins, outlining and defining them. During the summer, chlorophyll dissolves in the heat and light, but it is also being steadily replaced. In the fall, on the other hand, no new pigment is produced, and so we notice the other colors that were always there, right in the leaf, although chlorophyll's shocking green hid them from view. With our camouflage gone, we see these colors for the first time all year, and marvel. But they were always there, hidden like a vivid secret beneath the hot glowing greens of summer. The most spectacular range of fall foliage occurs in the northeastern United States and in eastern China, where the leaves are robustly colored, thanks in part to a rich climate. European maples don't achieve the same flaming reds as their American relatives, which thrive on cold nights and sunny days. In Europe, the warm, humid weather turns the leaves brown or mildly yellow. Anthocyanin, the pigment that gives apples their red and turns leaves red or red-violet, is produced by sugars that remain in the leaf after the supply of nutrients dwindles. Unlike the carotenoids, which color carrots, squash, and corn, and turn leaves orange and yellow, anthocyanin varies from year to year, depending on the temperature and amount of sunlight. The fiercest colors occur in years when the fall sunlight is strongest and the nights are cool and dry, a state of grace scientists find vexing to forecast. This is also why leaves appear dizzyingly bright and clear, on a sunny fall day. The anthocyanin flashes like a marquee. Not all leaves turn the same colors. 
elms, weeping willows, and the ancient ginkgo all grow radiant yellow, along with hickories, aspens, bottlebrush buckeyes, cottonweeds, and tall, keening poplars. Basswood turns bronze, birches bright gold. Water-loving maples put on a symphonic display of scarlets. Sumacs turn red, too, as do flowering dogwoods, black gums, and sweet gums. Though some oaks yellow, most turn a pinkish brown. The farmlands also change color, as teepees of corn stalks and bales of shredded wheat-textured hay stand drying in the fields. In some spots, one slope of a hill may be green and the other already in bright color, because the hillside facing south gets more sun and heat than the northern one. An odd feature of the colors is that they don't seem to have any special purpose. We are predisposed to respond to their beauty, of course. They shimmer with the colors of sunset, spring flowers, the tawny buff of a colt's pretty rump, the shuddering pink of a blush. Animals and flowers color for a reason, adaptation to their environment. But there is no adaptive reason for leaves to color so beautifully in the fall, any more than there is for the sky or ocean to be blue. It's just one of the haphazard marvels the planet bestows every year. We find the sizzling colors thrilling, and in a sense, they dupe us. Colored like living things, they signal death and disintegration. In time, they will become fragile and, like the body, return to dust. They are as we hope our own fate will be when we die. Not to vanish, just to sublime from one beautiful state into another. Though leaves lose their green life, they bloom with urgent colors as the woods grow mummified day by day and nature becomes more carnal, mute, and radiant. We call the season fall, from the Old English feallen to fall, which leads back through time to the Indo-European fall, which also means to fall. So the word and the idea are both extremely ancient, and haven't really changed since the first of our kind needed a name for fall's leafy abundance. As we say the word, we are reminded of that other fall in the Garden of Eden, when fig leaves never withered and scales fell from our eyes. Fall is the time when leaves fall from the trees, just as spring is when flowers spring up, summer is when we simmer, and winter is when we whine from the cold. Children love to play in piles of leaves, hurling them into the air like confetti, leaping into soft, unruly mattresses of them. For children, leaf fall is just one of the odder figments of nature, like hailstones or snowflakes. Walk down a lane overhung with trees in the never-never land of autumn, and you will forget about time and death 
lost in the sheer delicious spill of color. Adam and Eve concealed their nakedness with leaves, remember? Leaves have always hidden our awkward secrets. But how do the colored leaves fall? As a leaf ages, the growth hormone, auxin, fades, and cells at the base of the petiole divide. Two or three rows of small cells, lying at right angles to the axis of the petiole, react with water, then come apart, leaving the petioles hanging on by only a few threads of xylem. A light breeze, and the leaves are airborne. They glide and swoop, rocking in invisible cradles. They are all wing, and may flutter from yard to yard on small whirlwinds or updrafts, swiveling as they go. Firmly tethered to earth, we love to see things rise up and fly. Soap bubbles, balloons, birds, fall leaves. They remind us that the end of a season is capricious, as is the end of life. We especially like the way leaves rock, careen, and swoop as they fall. Everyone knows the motion. Pilots sometimes do a maneuver called a falling leaf, in which the plane loses altitude quickly and on purpose by slipping first to the right, then to the left. The machine weighs a ton or more, but in one pilot's mind, it is a weightless thing, a falling leaf. She has seen the motion before, in the Vermont woods, where she played as a child. Below her, the trees radiate gold, copper, and red. Leaves are falling, although she can't see them fall as she falls, swooping down for a closer view. At last the leaves leave. But first they turn color and thrill us for weeks on end. Then they crunch and crackle underfoot. They shush as children drag their small feet through the leaves heaped along the curb. Dark, slimy mats of leaves cling to one's heels after a rain. A damp, stucco-like mortar of semi-decayed leaves protects the tender shoots with a roof until spring and makes a rich hummus. An occasional bulge or ripple in the leafy mounds signals a shrew or a field mouse tunneling out of sight. Sometimes one finds in fossil stones the imprint of a leaf, long since disintegrated, whose outlines remind us how detailed, vibrant, and alive are the things of this earth that perish. See how beautiful that was? Everything Diane Ackerman writes, I swear, is just like that. Go look up A Natural History of the Senses. Incredible book. All right, but for now, let's just talk about this one. This essay is the perfect example of the difference between topic and theme, between an author's subject and an author's purpose. The subject here, the topic, is how leaves change color in the fall. And indeed, Ackerman gives us a whole lot of information on the subject, most of which I didn't know, certainly not in the terms she uses to discuss it. I mean, I grew up in New England. I already knew the leaves turned color. But until I read this, 
I did not know that the colors were already there in the leaves all the time, just covered up by the bright green of the chlorophyll. But Ackerman's purpose is something other than providing us information on the way that leaves turn color. On some level, it's in the title, which seems like a simple one, but is actually not, owing to one particular word. Why? The essay is Why Leaves Turn Color in the Fall. It provides information, but not an answer to that question. The information is about how the leaves turn color, and what colors they turn, and how we feel about their turning colors. But the title question remains, why? As Ackerman points out, the changing colors seem to have no adaptive purpose, yet there they are in all their autumnal glories. Exploring that contradiction, a thing that happens and which has strong effects, at least on us, but doesn't seem to have any reasonable explanation, is Ackerman's real purpose here. And as with any abstract, ineffable purpose, there isn't really a clear and satisfying answer. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about the question. But right from the first sentence, Ackerman tells us not to expect an easy or obvious answer. The stealth of autumn catches one unaware. So, okay, this is not going to be something that reaches up and slaps us in the face. And I mean, good, because who likes being slapped? But on the other hand, how do we look for something that is being stealthy? Well, we look for clues. Clues hidden, in this case intentionally, by the author. And how do authors hide clues? They use camouflage. They use something that represents something else. They use symbols and they use figurative language. You see the thing that is named, you have to figure out what that thing represents. So, okay, let's just talk simply about figurative language. There are a lot of terms for this. I like figurative language because it differentiates from descriptive language or literal language, which says exactly what it means. With figurative language, you have another level or layer of meaning, the words, and then the figure they represent, the symbol, the association, the other side of the metaphor. When you describe a person as starry-eyed, you're saying something about them other than they have literal stars in their eyes or stars for eyes. Metaphoric language is another term, but I like to include some other poetic devices and such apart from members of the metaphor family because I think they're all used in similar ways much of the time and often in conjunction, as with this piece here. A good activity when I do with my classes is to have a good discussion or two of what the actual terms mean and then to go through a piece like this one and identify every single example you can. So let me give you the list I would use for this and if you're interested in making a lesson out of this, Find a good working definition for each of these. Find or create your own examples of each one. Discuss them with the class and then come back to this essay and go through it sentence by sentence and identify everything you can. Okay? I will also include all the definitions for these items in the episode notes if you want to just skip the work and get straight to the answers. If you feel like you already know what all these things are, cool, just keep listening and I'll pick them out in the essay. Here's the list. Symbol metaphor, simile, personification, hyperbole, understatement, euphemism, allusion, synecdoche, metonymy, pun, onomatopoeia, alliteration, assonance, consonance. And maybe irony too. 
All right, Ackerman starts right from the get-go with this. The stealth of autumn catches one unaware. Autumn, of course, is not stealthy. It's a season. It is eminently predictable and describable, and therefore not stealthy. So this is not literally true, which means either Ackerman is a liar, or this is figurative language of some kind. She follows this with two rhetorical questions. Was that a goldfinch perching in the early September woods, or just the first turning leaf? A red-winged blackbird or a sugar maple closing up shop for the winter? These seem, at first, to be just two simple clarification questions, looking to solve a momentary confusion between two things that look alike, two yellow things, a September leaf and a goldfinch, and then two red things, a red-winged blackbird or a sugar maple leaf. But that sugar maple leaf is not just that, because most of the time, sugar maple leaves are green. To look like the red wings of a blackbird, and, by the way, good job with that one, bird-naming guys. It has to be a maple leaf in autumn, which Ackerman describes as a sugar maple closing up shop for the winter. So that is our first clear figurative language, and it is two, a metaphor and an example of synecdoche, which my students prefer to pronounce synecdoche. No, that's not fair. I'm the one who mispronounces things on purpose because I think it's funny. But maybe we'll help people to remember how to spell this ridiculous word. So, synecdoche. Synecdoche. It's a metaphor, a personification to be precise, because maples don't close up shop for the winter. People do that. But the point is, it's a familiar event that helps to explain what the author is describing in the life cycle of the tree, without getting too deep yet into the actual life cycle of the tree. After all, we're only in the first paragraph, and so the audience shouldn't be expected to have all that much knowledge of what happens to trees in fall and winter. Rather than get into the specific details, Ackerman uses a simple metaphor to give us an understanding based on something already familiar, closing up shop. The fact that this personifies the tree, giving it a human association, even a job or a business, will come into play later. It's synecdoche because the comparison here is between the red wings on the blackbird and the red leaves on the maple tree, not the entire tree. But Ackerman calls it the sugar maple closing up shop. Here the entire tree is being used to discuss a small part of the whole tree, the red leaf that appears as the tree closes up shop, so to speak, and gets ready for the winter. Ackerman goes right ahead into the next figurative language example, a more obvious one, the classic simile. Keen-eyed as leopards, we stand still and squint hard, looking for signs of movement. We are not literally, of course, as keen-eyed as leopards. You can tell she doesn't mean it as she states it because she describes us as standing still and squinting hard, a strong implication that our vision is not all that keen. No, it was figurative, meant to create an association. And it's an interesting one, because even as she personified nature, she, what, naturified? Humanity. And isn't it indicative of something that we have a specific name for giving human traits to something non-human, but giving the traits of a natural object or creature to a human just has to fall under the large umbrella of metaphor. Anyway. And she even put us in the role of a predator seeking prey. Again, clearly not literally, as we don't eat tree leaves, not even from the tasty-sounding sugar maple. Just so I don't abandon these points later, let me just say now, the personification of the sugar maple is because she is looking to make a point about humanity within her discussion of nature. And so having an early association of trees with humans, and specifically having trees represent humans, helps to build up the theme that she wants to get to. 
and the synecdoche where you have a large thing representing a small thing, a small part of itself or a small part of a thing representing the whole also has to do with representation, right? A small, maybe seemingly minor point represents a much larger body or a single example represents an entire group, maybe an entire species, maybe even all of humanity. Those ideas are important for the rest of the, of the of the piece. So she's not trying to make those points right here, right now, but the more she uses things, figurative language, that gets us thinking in those ways, humans and nature representing each other in some way, and small things representing larger things, or, you know, representing a larger part, uh, that gets us in sort of in the mood. It gets us thinking along the lines that she wants us thinking of. But Ackerman's not done yet with his paragraph. Her next sentence is, Early morning frost sits heavily on the grass and turns barbed wire into a string of stars. Two metaphors and a really interesting juxtaposition. The first is frost sitting heavily, a metaphor that gives frost an animated, if not a specifically human, activity. And then turning barbed wire into a string of stars, a metaphor based on the appearance of frost-covered barbs in early morning sunlight, which turns the rather negative-sounding barbed wire associated with battlefields and prison fences, along with the more familiar uses of keeping livestock in and predators out, into the lovely and ethereal-sounding string of stars. Notice again, human thing, barbed wire, being turned into a natural thing, string of stars. Next sentence. On a distant hill, a small square of yellow appears to be a lighted stage. Another simile. Please note, by the way, the similes don't always have to use like or as. The difference between a metaphor and a simile is that in a simile, the resemblance is specifically named, and in a metaphor, it is implied. Saying something appears to be, or resembles, or calls to mind something else is a simile, like this one. But also notice that the like I just used is not a simile like, it's an exemplifying like, because I'm giving an example, not comparing two unlike things. Ah, language. And there's another description here of a natural object as a human thing, a lighted stage. And now, almost as if she's stepping up on that stage and beginning her performance, or as if nature is, Ackerman explodes into a burst of figurative language to end the paragraph. At last the truth dawns on us. Fall is staggering in, right on schedule, with its baggage of chilly nights, macabre holidays, and spectacular, heart-stoppingly beautiful leaves. Soon the leaves will start cringing on the trees and roll up in clenched fists before they actually fall off. Dry seed pods will rattle like tiny gourds. But first there will be weeks of gushing colors so bright, so pastel, so confetti-like, that people will travel up and down the East Coast just to stare at it. A whole season of leaves. Just to name everything. Truth dawning is a metaphor. Fall staggering is a metaphor that becomes a personification when Ackerman throws in the baggage, which has a secondary symbolic meaning of emotional baggage, which might be what makes fall stagger. And by the way, fall staggering, that's a pun. Heart-stoppingly beautiful is hyperbole. Leaves cringing is a metaphor that becomes sort of a personification within a synecdoche. The leaves turning into human-like clenched fists, which may be turned to the tree into a person, 
until the leaves fall off, which kills the whole metaphor, dead like the leaves. And I would say there is a symbolic meaning in the clenched fist description, which implies fighting or strength. Dry seed pods rattling like tiny gourds is a simile. Nature compared to nature, interestingly enough. And then you get the hyperbolic and metaphoric gushing color, which is then compared to confetti in the one-word simile confetti-like, ending with another hyperbole that isn't actually exaggerated much because people really do travel up and down the East Coast just to stare at it, but they don't travel all the way up and down the entire coast, and they don't just stare at the colors, so hyperbole. And then one last synecdoche, the season of leaves, when really it's a whole season with all the seasonal things, several of which Ackerman has just described, the chilly nights, macabre holidays, all that. But we're using the leaves to represent the whole thing. And so, when we're talking about fall here, we're talking about leaves. Synecdoche. So yeah, it's a lot. And like I said, it's good practice to go through the whole piece and just identify example after example of figurative language, partly so you can see how good Ackerman is at this, and partly so you can see how saturated in metaphor and symbolism our language and all good writing is. And then the question that we're going to try and work on here, but can become even more emphatic and apparent if you look at the entire piece item by item, poetic device by poetic device, figurative language example by example, is what is the effect of all this? Why is this done? Why is Ackerman using this? That's the question for this episode as a whole. It is why. Why is there so much figurative language here? What is the effect of so many metaphors and comparisons and associations? Okay, first, there's a practical answer, and I mentioned it before. This piece is an example of familiar science writing. Popular science writing is the actual term, but I prefer familiar science writing because the goal is not really to make science popular. It is to make it familiar. Which type of writing is much, if not most, of what Ackerman writes? She is trying to make scientific concepts and terminology more accessible and familiar to the average reader. The way you do that is to describe scientific items using more familiar words and images, or in other words, similes and metaphors and so on. Figurative language is used, generally speaking, to turn abstract things concrete so that somebody can understand what the author is talking about when they say love because the audience can picture two hearts beating as one, where we can't necessarily picture love, because love is large and abstract, but two hearts beating as one is specific and concrete, and so on. So in popular science writing, in in familiar science writing, you're not doing necessarily abstract things, you're doing science terms, science ideas that are then made not necessarily more concrete, but again, more familiar using similes and metaphors that compare things we know to things we maybe don't know, which are the science terms. Ackerman uses metaphors like trees closing up shop as a sort of, it's like familiarizing shorthand for the actual natural processes that are going on in the tree. Though in that case, she actually gets into the natural processes later in the essay, since they are her specific subject here, because the metaphor of closing up shop is easier to understand and imagine. The second reason for all this figurative language is hinted at in the stealth Ackerman mentioned, and in the steady stream of metaphors related to camouflage, to predators seeking and prey hiding, often in plain sight. The basic idea here is that we can see exactly what is going on on the surface. Autumn comes every year, and every year the leaves turn color and then fall. No problem, very familiar. 
but there is much more to the story under the surface, hiding in plain sight. Again, because the idea of camouflage is that the obvious assumption the viewer wants to make is what the real secret hides behind. When you have a stick bug that looks like a stick and the viewer assumes it is a stick, it doesn't, the viewer doesn't see the bug. And that's the goal. Hiding behind something larger than the hider is not camouflage, it's just hiding. Camouflage is the art of tricking the viewer's eye into thinking it's not seeing what it is actually seeing. And the less the viewer questions what we are seeing, the less we think about the assumptions we are making, the easier it is for the secret truth to hide. To really find it, we have to want to look. We have to be keen-eyed as leopards, hungrily searching for sustenance. And maybe for the same reason, if it is true, as it often seems to be, that understanding nature would help keep us alive. Ackerman wants us to question what we think we see. And so she hides so much that we can't help but notice some of it. And hopefully, once we start noticing the hidden or, well, at least camouflage things, we start seeing just how many things are hidden. And we start looking more carefully and seeing more and looking more carefully and seeing more and so on. Maybe we finally see enough that we actually start to understand. Maybe we see the truth. And that's part of the goal, too. Not only to see the truth, but to recognize that looking harder within things trying to pierce the camouflage and see what is hidden in plain sight is a good thing. So she influences us to do it with this essay that does it so well and makes us curious about it. So the next paragraph, though it still has plenty of metaphor, is the more scientific and technical description of what is going on here. The gist, still presented in two comparisons that make sense to us being more familiar metaphors, is in the question and answer that start the paragraph, where do the colors come from? Sunlight rules most things with its golden edicts. And in the comparison, also highlighted by a rhetorical question that ends the paragraph. Animals can migrate, hibernate, or store food to prepare for winter, but where can a tree go? It survives by dropping its leaves. So the point here, the sun is the main driver, the first cause, the monarch, declaring golden edicts that every living thing must obey. And then, simply put, the answer to the main question, why do trees drop their leaves? Because that's how they survive. Simple and inescapable. It is about life. The next paragraph gives more detail about the puzzle that remains. Okay, that's why trees drop their leaves. But why do the leaves change colors? More specifically, why do they turn colors other than simple dead brown? And here, the theme of camouflage and hidden truth is suddenly revealed. In the description of the bright colors, always there, but previously hidden by the powerful green of chlorophyll, you know, the substance the trees use to survive, thanks to the sun, suddenly coming out as the chlorophyll breaks down. As the leaves die. Moving on to the next paragraph, Ackerman continues with the factual reporting, because this essay is intended to inform or educate the audience, as all good popular science writing should, giving name to the compounds that produce the actual colors. The only figurative language here, other than the brief metaphor of flaming reds, and the possible political irony of talking about China and the U.S., and calling the U.S. reds brighter than the Chinese reds, 
And one other important symbol I'll talk about in a sec is at the end of the paragraph when she says, the fiercest colors occur in years when the fall sunlight is strongest and the nights are cool and dry, a state of grace scientists find vexing to forecast. This is also why leaves appear dizzyingly bright and clear on a sunny fall day. The anthocyanin flashes like a marquee. The first metaphor there is in the phrase state of grace, used to describe the weather situation of strong sunlight and cool dry nights. It's an intriguing metaphor because it moves in the opposite direction from most metaphors. Instead of concretizing, familiarizing more abstract and esoteric concepts, this one takes a very clear, straightforward description strong sunlight, cool dry nights, and gives it an abstract, meaningful association, a state of grace. And what an interesting association to make. She means it's a good thing, a perfect situation. And I wonder if the comment that scientists find this situation vexing to forecast is because that situation is going to become more and more rare as the climate changes and brings increased heat and changes in moisture levels, thereby making forecasts vexing because the fact that the state of grace will surely vanish thanks to man's impact on the climate is, well, it's frustrating. But there are a bunch of ways she could describe this perfect situation. Balance might be one, the balance between warm sunlight and cool dry nights. Goldilocks might be another metaphoric one, not too hot, not too cold, just the right amount of sunshine and cool dryness to make that porridge flash like a marquee. Okay, that last part didn't work, but you see my point. No, Ackerman chose to use state of grace, a religious concept, specifically a Christian one, describing the unusual situation where a person's soul is without sin achievable only after absolution, after baptism, or if one happens to be the Son of God. Or, in one other condition described in the Bible, in the first book of Genesis, and associated quite strongly with trees, and with the other important symbol in this paragraph, the apple. Ackerman says that anthocyanin gives apples their red color. Okay, sure, that's perfectly familiar, but you know what else is anthocyanin? Every red or violet red or purple fruit or vegetable, red cabbage, purple potatoes, beets, cranberries, cherries, blackberries, currants. So why did Ackerman use apples in the same paragraph where she mentioned the state of grace? Could it be intentional? But I mean, it's just a small example in the middle of the paragraph. Maybe she's just thinking of apples. Maybe apples are her favorite fruit. Maybe she had one sitting in front of her when she wrote this. Sure, maybe. Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe this one little example tucked into a larger paragraph isn't the main point of the essay, camouflaged by apparent unimportance. Though I have to note that the last simile in this paragraph, the anthocyanin flashes like a marquee, is pointing to anthocyanin and comparing it to a flashing red sign. Hmm. A sign. Drawing attention. To the red thing. Anyway, next paragraph has lists and examples. She moves us away from the red flag by talking about the whole rainbow of colors that appear in the fall. It's a nice passage, really just some lovely writing about a lovely scene. There's some figurative language, keening poplars, a symphonic display of scarlets put on by the maple trees, uh, which is also an example of synesthesia, when sense impressions are blended and mixed. Here we have a musical sound display performed with colors. 
The other nice thing about this paragraph is Ackerman makes use of some of the sound devices available in English, which I tend to include in figurative language, even though, strictly speaking, they aren't very figurative. Sound devices, by which I mean alliteration, assonance and consonance, rhyme, and the head-smashing onomatopoeia, tend to make connections between words, between ideas, to improve the flow. In a paragraph of mostly lists of tree names, something to make it flow smoothly and add a little more interest is important. My favorites here are the alliteration in Basswood Turns Bronze, Birch's Bright Gold, and the repeated G sounds in Dogwoods, Black Gums, and Sweet Gums, because the repeated sound is in the middle of the words, which is cool. Okay, the next paragraph. Now that we have been lulled by pretty colors and pretty words into a pleasant trance, is a misdirection that suddenly sneaks up on us and pounces. It starts with the misdirect. An odd feature of the colors is that they don't seem to have any special purpose. Huh. Yeah, weird. No reason for them, huh? Okay. We are predisposed to respond to their beauty, of course. They shimmer with the colors of sunset, spring flowers, the tawny buff of a colt's pretty rump, the shuddering pink of a blush. So, the trees may not have a reason for the colors, but the colors are meaningful to us. Now, I know I'm reading into this too much, but also, that's what Ackerman is telling us to do. Do you see that? The trees which create the colors don't necessarily have a reason to do it, though like with any other observable fact about nature, it may also be, probably is, that we just don't understand the reason yet. But whatever their intentions are, so to speak, the colors create reactions in humans. And she says pretty clearly that the humans are designed or created or whatever to respond to their to the colors. She says, she says we are predisposed to respond to their beauty. So it's, it's the way that we are made, not the way that the trees are made. Just like these other things that aren't made for the purpose of drawing a reaction from humans, the reactions happen anyway. The sunset doesn't create colors for us, but they affect us nonetheless. And that effect isn't lessened by the lack of intention on the part of the creator of the effect. And Ackerman is here, maybe speaking, about God. That's my too deep reach here. Whether God created the sunset and the fall leaves or not, the sunset and the fall leaves are there and do affect us. And in the same way, an author may not have meant anything with the choice of an apple, but the effect can be there regardless and can be real, even without authorial intent to create that effect. So the last item on our list, the shuddering pink of a blush, is an interesting one because it's a human emotional reference where the others are definitely not human-centric. But it's still a natural reaction that doesn't have a survival benefit, right? Now she gets back to the survival point and discards it more clearly. And in discarding it by saying that the trees are not using fall colors to enhance the survival of the species, she leaves us with really only one possible explanation for the colors of the leaves. Though she does not here answer the Huck Finn question, was they made or did they just happen? Animals and flowers color for a reason, adaptation to their environment, but there is no adaptive reason for leaves to color so beautifully in the fall any more than there is for the sky or ocean to be blue. It's just one of the haphazard marvels the planet bestows every year. Nature makes the leaves pretty colors. It just does. 
either because God does it, if you want to see the hand of a creator or intelligent designer in the creation, or it happens for no identifiable reason, like the sky and ocean being blue. There's maybe a hint about where Ackerman lands on this when she says the planet bestows these things on us, but she also calls it one of the haphazard marvels. So there is intent in the bestowing, there is no intent in the haphazard. Take yo pick. But again, regardless of the intent or lack thereof, the effect of these things is tangible and real. We find the sizzling colors thrilling, and in a sense, they dupe us. I love the sound of the phrase sizzling colors thrilling, which has both onomatopoeia and multiple consonants almost rhyme. But what is that second part? Dupe us, you say? Sort of like camouflage? Tricking the viewer into missing the secret hiding in plain sight? Go on. Colored like living things, they signal death and disintegration. There. That's the secret hidden in the camouflage. The camouflage in this essay is talking about life, when really this essay, Those Fall Leaves, are about death. Now, with a particularly important simile that leads to a larger comparison, Ackerman reveals her figurative and symbolic meaning, the secret she has been hiding in plain sight by talking about the leaves that become beautiful as they are dying. In time, they will become fragile and, like the body, return to dust. They are as we hope our own fate will be when we die, not to vanish, just to sublime from one beautiful state into another. Though leaves lose their green life, they bloom with urgent colors as the woods grow mummified day by day, and nature becomes more carnal, mute, and radiant. Not to vanish is an interesting phrase, because that's not what the leaves are concerned with. That's a purely human concern, an important one. Just to sublime And I love the use of that word because she's using that form instead of the more familiar sublimate to describe the shift between states, like when solid ice turns to water vapor, or here when green leaves turn to red and gold leaves. And she's using this form of the word because the word sublime associates the ideas of heaven and bliss and awesome miraculous goodness. Then from one beautiful state to another is a perfect description of our usual concept of a paradisical afterlife our dream of the perfect death. That's right, we're talking about death. Losing green life, as she says in the last sentence, the colors growing urgent as time grows short, the woods growing mummified, and that strange final list, nature becomes more carnal, mute, and radiant. How do those three things go together? What is she even describing here? The leaves are most likely the radiant part, Mute could describe the descent into the silent sleep of winter or of death, though it doesn't have much to do with the colors of fall leaves, which aren't really loud even in the summer, although colors can be muted too, and that's a decent description of how the leaves end up because the colors do fade with time. But how does carnal fit either with the change of colors in the fall or with the slow arrival of death? Do we become more concerned with the body rather than the soul? Is the forest doing that? Honestly, I don't know what she means. But I know what she means in the next paragraph, when she reveals the central theme of this essay as it relates to the religious and human ideas she's been concealing and hinting at. 
We call the season Fall from the Old English Fialan to Fall, which leads back through time to the Indo-European Fall, which also means to fall. So the word and the idea are both extremely ancient and haven't really changed since the first of our kind needed a name for fall's leafy abundance. As we say the word, we're reminded of that other fall in the Garden of Eden, when fig leaves never withered and scales fell from our eyes. Fall is the time when leaves fall from the trees, just as spring is when flowers spring up, summer is when we simmer, and winter is when we whine for the cold. She misdirects in that last sentence there, trying to pull us away from the main fact she just revealed. But she does it, I think, intentionally badly, with a series of increasingly bad puns. The fall and the spring ones are fine, but the simmering summer and the whining winter? Those are real groaners. But they're just the camouflage. Notice how the last sentence has nothing whatsoever to do with the sentence before it? That's the sentence that matters. And look at what it says. The Garden of Eden in the Bible before the fall, the fall from the state of grace, the state of innocence enjoined by Adam and Eve before they ate the apple from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were immortal, eternal, and unchanging before they ate the apple. Also, by the way, if you accept the, you know, the, the Bible's Genesis version of humanity's creation, they were the first of us, and Adam's task was to find a name for things. So that line about, since the first of us were seeking a name for things, for fall's leafy abundance, yeah, that's another reference pointing to this. So, they were in paradise, then they fell, and were cast out of unchanging paradise, where the leaves were always green, where fig leaves never withered. And they went out into the mortal world, into our world. And the scales fell from their eyes because they knew the truth. They knew good and evil. They knew pain as well as pleasure. They knew life and death. Notice how she focuses on that aspect. She doesn't refer to their sin, the loss of innocence. She points out that they gained clear vision. They saw what had been hidden before. Scales fell from our eyes is a metaphor for revelation. But it's literally the return of clear sight. Fun fact, the scales on the eyes in the book of Tobit in the Christian Apocrypha were layers of bird shit. Look it up. The gaining of knowledge, the understanding of truth. Notice also the subtle joke Ackerman makes in the reference to fig leaves. The fig leaves were the garments Adam and Eve used to cover their nakedness once they had gained enough knowledge to understand it and to know shame. The fig leaves represent the concealment of the facts of life. And the comments about how they never withered is a nod to the fact that Adam and Eve, while they may have been perfectly happy and blissful in their ignorance in the garden, never got to have sex until after they fell. So, maybe not all bad. Even though they did lose their immortality and have to experience death. Maybe that wasn't all bad either. But never mind that. Look over here. I'm making puns. Summer simmer. Winter's wine. Ah, don't look behind that curtain. Look at the next paragraph. It's about kids having fun. Wee! Children love to play in piles of leaves, hurling them into the air like confetti, leaping into soft, unruly mattresses of them. For children, leaf fall is just one of the otter figments of nature, like hailstones or snowflakes. Walk down a lane overhung with trees in the never-never land of autumn, and you will forget about time and death, lost in the sheer delicious spill of color. Adam and Eve concealed their nakedness with leaves, remember? 
Leaves have always hidden our awkward secrets. So she talks about how fun leaves are. Uh, And as someone who grew up in New England in the brightest autumn colors in the world, I can attest that fall leaves are enormous fun. With a simile and a metaphor. And then she comments on how kids are basically dumb. They may have fun, but they don't understand things and they don't try to. I don't mean that as an insult. Okay, I kind of do, but only because it's funny. Ackerman is using the fact of childish ignorance due to childish innocence as a counterpoint to what she's trying to tell us to do, which is to figure things out, to look, to seek, to find and understand. Don't just accept fall leaves and snowflakes and hailstones as mysteries of nature or of God. Doing that is just being childish. It's going to Never Never Land, the illusion she makes in the next sentence. Forget about time and death. Just have fun. Look at the pretty colors. Peter Pan never grows older in Never Never Land, or to use Peter's own phrase, he never grows up. And then in case we missed it with a fig leaf reference, Ackerman goes straight at it with another Adam and Eve reference and points out that leaves hide awkward secrets. In the case of Adam and Eve, they hid sex. And in the case of fall leaves and this essay, they hide death. That's the real subject of this essay. The actual theme Ackerman wants to talk about, but conceals in camouflage of bright colors and beautiful writing. Death. Leaves turn color when they die. In her next paragraph, Ackerman discusses exactly that. Why the leaves fall. She gives us the actual process whereby the leaves die or rather how they separate from the tree, sort of like Adam and Eve separating from their created paradise. And look how beautiful this separation is. A light breeze and the leaves are airborne. They glide and swoop, rocking in invisible cradles. They are all wing and may flutter from yard to yard on small whirlwinds or updrafts, swiveling as they go. Notice, by the way, the triple onomatopoeia there in glide, swoop, and rock. So cool. To be clear, this is the death of the leaf, and it is graceful and lovely, especially to us, as Ackerman points out next. Firmly tethered to earth, we love to see things rise up and fly. Soap bubbles, balloons, birds, fall leaves. And why do we feel that way? They remind us that the end of a season is capricious, as is the end of life. We especially like the way leaves rock, careen, and swoop as they fall. Another triple onomatopoeia. The end of a season is capricious. Capricious meaning given to sudden and unpredictable change. You can't predict exactly when a season will end, exactly when a leaf will fall. Though you can predict that it will. Just like the end of life. We can't know when it will happen, just that it always does. And when it does, why, falling is quite a lot like flying, isn't it? Pilots sometimes do a maneuver called a falling leaf, in which the plane loses altitude quickly and on purpose by slipping first to the right, then to the left. The machine weighs a ton or more, but in one pilot's mind it is a weightless thing, a falling leaf. She has seen the motion before in the Vermont woods where she played as a child. Below her, the trees radiate gold, copper, and red. Leaves are falling, although she can't see them fall, as she falls, swooping down for a closer view. 
Then, after this final swooping, looping flight, we come down to Earth and get to the end. Starting with one more pun. At last the leaves leave. But first they turn color and thrill us for weeks on end. Then they crunch and crackle underfoot. They shush as children drag their small feet through the leaves heaped along the curb. More onomatopoeia. Dark, slimy mats of leaves cling to one's heels after a rain. A damp, stucco-like mortar of semi-decayed leaves protects the tender shoots with a roof until spring and makes a rich hummus. An occasional bulge or ripple in the leafy mounds signals a shrew or a field mouse tunneling out of sight. Sometimes one finds in fossil stones the imprint of a leaf, long since disintegrated, whose outlines remind us how detailed, vibrant, and alive are the things of this earth that perish. This is the final part of the life cycle, the death cycle. The leaves turn vibrant colors, then they are wonderful noisemakers. Uh, one of my favorite sounds on this earth is the shush of running your feet through piles of dry leaves. I used to walk in the gutters rather than on the sidewalks because that's where the leaves were. Best thing ever. Then they become slimy and wet. They rot. And then they help give rise to new life, protecting green shoots, concealing living creatures, providing nutrients in the hummus. And sometimes those dead leaves leave an imprint that lasts forever. But that imprint reminds us the leaf itself is gone, that life is gone into death. And with that final image comes Ackerman's overall point. How detailed, vibrant, and alive are the things of this earth that perish. Leaves turn color because they die. In the Garden of Eden, when nothing died, the leaves were all only one color, just green. Life had to leave eternity in order to gain beauty and grandeur and even fun. That's her point. Death is what gives life meaning. And if we look hard enough, we can see that secret hidden in plain sight all around us. We should try to understand that. Hopefully this episode helps a little. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.